We never finished our conversation. Didn't feel like a conversation to me. This is Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the TV we're obsessed with. And right now, that's The Expanse. I'm Jonathan Gitlin, and this week I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Sarus Farivar. Hey, Sarus, how are you? Hey, what's up, Jonathan? I literally just finished this right before we recorded. This is season two, episode 10. Uh, the episode title is Cascade. And it was great. I, I I, mean, I don't know. I sort of feel like this after every episode of The Expanse that I watched, but I really feel like this was a very good episode and one that really kind of advanced the story in a really interesting way. Yes. Something that I've been conscious watching this show compared to something like Game of Thrones, where these gigantic epic TV shows, a mm-hmm. lot of the time they can take a very long time moving the plot forward. Um, right. And I don't think that's the case at all with The Expanse. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and what I also like is that although the show, and I was sort of thinking about this as I was watching this most recent episode, although the story is very big and it takes place in different locations, there's a lot of characters, there's a lot of things going on. In many ways, I sort of realized the show is very narrow, right? There's only so many sets and so many locations where like things happen. You know, there's the Rossi, obviously, there's the UN at Earth, but you know, as I was watching this episode, I was like, really, we haven't seen anything else on Earth besides the UN and besides Christian's like sweet house in the countryside or whatever. I'm so glad you brought that up because I actually have exactly that same note written down. It is. It, other than in season one, I think there was a bit of the farm that Holden grew up on, which right. is some snowy expanse. But you're right. This is the first time we really got to see, you know, what the vast majority of people who live on Earth have to live Well, yeah. And what I loved about that is, you know, it seems like it's in direct contrast to what we heard from Christian in the episode before, which is, you know, she's saying, you know, that Earth is this place where and it sort of reminded me, you know, I'm somebody who grew up in Star Trek Next Generation and, and, you know, in the TNG world of 24th century Earth. It's a post-scarcity civilization. Yeah, it's a post-scarcity civilization. Everybody sort of does what their passions tell them to do. They live on sort of a presumed kind of basic income or whatever. I mean, that's what Christian basically says in that here. She says, you know, people do this, you know, work because they choose to, you know, your parents chose to leave Earth and chose to become Martians, etc. And then we see, you know, Bobby or, or Gunny, as I guess her colleagues call her, you know, walking through what seems to be sort of a dystopian slum hellscape on the doorstep of the UN. The show's done a great job, I think, of showing how how dispossessed many of the belters are. Right. And I think I think maybe a lot of us are taking for granted the fact that, you know, that they're the downtrodden masses. But it turns out there's billions of people on Earth who are also living, you know, fine. They, they obviously they don't have to worry about paying for their next breath of air. That was something that I sort of wondered about is like, are we to interpret that the majority of Earthers live in slums like this? Or are we to... And I don't know. And I haven't read the books. I'll say that up front. Everything that I know about The Expanse comes from just having watched watch the episodes. But I'm really curious to see if we'll get to see more of what Earth looks like, what a, what an Earth city looks like. You know, all we get are these kind of skyscraper aerial shots of, you know, lower Manhattan with these cool buildings added and drones flying all over the place, you know, and that sort of stuff. And then we've got this kind of ending scene with Gunny and Christian down at the waterfront. But that's it, you know, like, and and so I'd I'd be really curious if in the future we get more of, do all cities look like this? Do all cities have sort of a, you know, prim and proper city center surrounded by slums or or integrated with slums in some way? I don't, I don't know. I'm really excited to see that. If we get, the show just got renewed. So season three, they're making season three, which means we'll see the next book. Book five and six have a lot of stuff that happens on earth. So... Whether or not they bring some of those plot elements forward, 
since they're being quite free in picking and choosing strands of the story to introduce to different places. Mm -hmm. But actually, even those books, I don't think it's all still on a quite local level. Because the storytelling, right. I guess, always is always from the perspective of, you know, one of the main characters. The stories do tend to be, you know, they're quite small at the same time as, you know, taking place all over the, the solar system. Amos's backstory is he grew up in a slum in Baltimore. Um, so that obviously, I think, would be a, a bit like the shanty around the UN. Yeah. And we sort of get hints of that. And there's a great moment, I think it's in this season, where he says something like, where he's talking to one of these proto-molecule scientists who's in this little kind of captive science lab or whatever. Cortazar, the scientist they pulled off. That's right. I have trouble with names and I have a lot of trouble with names on a show that has so many characters like this, especially when they don't say their names all the time. I have to look them up all the time. But yeah, so Amos says something like, you know, have you ever dealt with somebody who, you know, was into child pornography when he's talking to, I think it's Naomi or so, or maybe it's Holden, I forget. He's been dropping these kind of breadcrumbs of, of his own story. But all that we know based on his behavior, all that I've sort of picked up on is that, yeah, he, he's from Baltimore. He seemed to have come from this rough and tumble childhood. And he's kind of a brute, but he's kind of a brute with a heart. And he doesn't and, you know, I've just I've just watched this crazy scene where he he beat up this uh, Roma character with a can of, uh, of chicken, I guess, <laughs> which I think is like a repainted spam can, or at least it's meant to it seems like it's meant to look like that, uh, which I th after that, we actually I think we got our kind of most complete understanding of how he grew up when he was talking to Prax about the pimps, right? Pimps and bullies and all of this stuff and and saying that he sort of seem to be suggesting that there can be this sort of endless cycle of violence and terribleness. And basically slavery, uh, really. Yeah, yeah, sexual slavery, basically, which sounds pretty awful. And I wonder, I, I'd be curious to know how he found himself, you know, where he was and how he got to being on the Rossi and so forth. There is some of that backstory in one of the novellas called The Churn, mm. which I think they've started incorporating bits of. When I interviewed Wes Chatham, we talked about the way that he plays that character. There's a mix of a lot of kind of, you know, psychological damage from that upbringing and then also maybe a little bit of autism in there at the same time. So, I mean, it's, you know, something I guess that he's, that Wes has thought a lot about how to play that character. I mean, the, the acting strikes me as very deliberate and probably very difficult. I mean, I think compared to, I mean, all the characters, I think, have very complex roles to play. But I think for somebody like him who has to exhibit physical behaviors, I think often in a way that other characters don't, and we don't necessarily get always an explanation of why he's behaving in the way that he's behaving. But yeah, it must be, I think that that probably is a pretty challenging role, I would imagine. I think the books have been much less ambiguous about quite how broken he is as a character. I mean, I know a lot of the comment threads and, you know, discussions that you read online, but like particularly when we post stuff about The Expanse in the early days, you know, there were lots of people like, well, is, Alo is Amos really a, a sociopath or, you know, does he just not like particular people? I think it's definitely the former. So what else happened this week? We saw the Ganymede's in a total mess since it, it was where most of the food was grown. Right. And I had to actually do a little bit of stellar cartography to figure out exactly where Ganymede was. <laughs> As somebody who loves maps and, you know, given that this show, you know, unlike Star Trek, is set in a kind of a real, you know, solar system with real planets and real asteroids and real places, I had to sort of look up, like, where is Ganymede in relation to everything else? And I was reminded when I, you know, did my two seconds of Wikipedia research that Ganymede actually is orbiting around Jupiter and is actually pretty far from not only the belt, but Earth, you know? And so like when they're talking about sending things to Ganymede, I was like, oh, that's like 
you know, not next door. It's not in the belt. It's like a considerable distance away. And so it strikes me, and I don't know if this is kind of intended or if this is explained in the books, but, you know, they keep talking about how Ganymede is the food source, I guess, for the belt or for at least a large portion of the belt. But I wonder if the idea of, you know, given that that Earth has expanded or that humans have expanded to the belt and to Mars, if there's this idea that they're going to try to expand further out into the solar system to other moons or other places, you know, if their food station is so far away that maybe then the idea is that it's, you know, it's going to be, they're going to continue to expand kind of radially outward. But I don't know. I think that is what's happening without giving anything away. So until a protomolecule turned up and is doing its thing on Venus, that I think was the plan. And I think Tycho Station is quite far out in the solar mm-hmm. system. One of my favorite things about the show is the the props and these kind of like futuristic kind of iPads and smartphones that everybody has. What appear to be some kind of super thin glass and people just sort of carry them around. And I love how they can kind of throw images you know, easily from one display to another display. I love the scenes kind of in the UN conference room where, the, where everybody's kind of throwing displays up in the air. I think that's kind of a neat effect. I wish on one of those screens that they would maybe give a better, I don't know, map of kind of where everything is and what's going on. Because, uh, you know, like I was saying, I find it sometimes difficult to figure out, you know, how far is, you know, Eros from Ceres? How far is, you know, Mars from Ganymede? How far, you know, how long does it take to get from... I did see a fan-created infographic. Oh, okay. I would love that. Two weeks ago that there was, that talked about transit times. Oh, okay. So I'll see if I can dig that up. Because it seems like when they, you know, are saying like, oh, we're sending a ship to Ganymede, you know, from Mars or whatever, or from Earth even, right? I don't know if the Martian technology, in terms of like their engines or whatever, it, it, I get the impression that, that, you know, every ship travels roughly the same speed. But it doesn't seem like... Everyone uses the same Epstein drives. Right. And right. transit times take, depending how many G, how many fractions of a G, you know, they want to subject themselves to. So in the book, the transit times are all you know, days or weeks. Obviously, right, they, right. you know, for TV, that doesn't make thrilling viewing. So they just don't show you those bits. But anyway, yeah, I would just love to see kind of a, a proper map and maybe you can send that to me later. But I'd be curious, you know, for you as somebody who who has read all the books, do you feel like the scenes and the way it's shot matches kind of your imagined version of this? Like, do you feel like it's, it's is it fleshed out? My, my understanding is that, for example, like Belter is not written in the books but it's described so there is some written belter in the in the books but it's not uh, nearly to the extent that it's used in the tv show and i think they brought nick farmer in specifically for the tv show belter as opposed uh-huh. to, the, to the book belter but in answer to your question yes allowing for the fact that the show doesn't have a an infinite budget so the book describes belters as being quite physically different to humans who grew up down a gravity well you know they're much right. taller they have much skinnier limbs and, and longer necks you know, obviously that's too difficult to do unless you CGI everyone. And there's much less people floating around in zero G than in the Right. Books. I have to say, speaking of zero G, I loved the most recent scene. We can talk about this in a minute, but the, I just wanted to bring up this great scene with Alex in zero G. When we spoke to the showrunner, Naren Shankar, around about episode three, mm-hmm. we had a brief discussion about, you know, some of the limitations they have and, you know, because their budget isn't finite and they can't CGI all the characters and, you know, they can't shoot everything in zero G. But he did mention that to wait for episode 10, for season two because mm-hmm. there was something seriously cool coming that i think the scenes of alex floating around shotgunning cans of beer delivered yeah it was and it was so funny the way you know when they cut back to him because it's such a i don't know i sort of interpreted it as almost like a kind of a light comic relief from the tense parts of the of the episode 
where we just cut back to him and he's just chilling in, in the Rossi up there by himself. And it was not clear to me whether he was drinking beer or if he was drinking... I thought, well, maybe he's drinking some sort of like space energy drink or something like that. Yeah, I'm going to go with beer. <laughs> I mean, beer is the better answer, I feel like. But I was wondering is like, I thought, I thought, well, you know, we don't know exactly how long he's been up there. And it, I thought, well, maybe he has to stay awake because, you know, so maybe he needs some sort of stimulant to like keep him awake mm, good um, point. because he could be called at any time. But I don't know. This is all headcanon. But <laughs> but I, I just love the, you know, he's sitting there with that. And I didn't even look up the song that he was that he was listening to. But the way it's shot where he, you know, he has magmoots uh, of some kind and he kind of jumps on the staircase railing and that does a bunch of spins. Just the way that's shot is just really cool. And I'd be curious to know more about how that's actually filmed or if that's just all kind of a, a CGI effect. But it just looked really cool. And the idea that it, that the payoff of that scene is just so that he can hop down and lap up bubbles of whatever he's drinking is <laughs> just such a great... I sort of took it as kind of a visual gag um, because he's just like so bored up there. <laughs> the spin, I thought, was a, seemed to be a bit of a hom- an homage to um, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I had the same thought too. yeah. I think that was probably the rotating the camera thing. Yeah, yeah. I love his character. I mean, I I feel like all the characters are are really great, but I think the kind of simmering tension between him and Amos is really interesting and the kind of, you know, Earther, Martian, Belter tension amongst the crew that bubbles up a little bit, but not much is also really interesting. And I wonder if that tension amongst them is meant to kind of mirror the larger tension on the kind of solar system scale. Yeah, Alex, I think is in the books... It takes a while for them to flesh out. Like Holden is the character they focus on most in the first right. in the first couple of books. I think Alex seems to be growing into uh, providing quite a bit of comic relief. He's the lighthearted pilot. Yeah, and it's interesting because when I explain The Expanse to people, I actually just talked my mother-in-law into watching The Expanse, and I didn't even know she was into sci-fi. And she, So she's seen now the f- very first two episodes. And when I was sort of explaining the concept of the show to her, the way I sort of explain Martians is that they're sort of, they're basically Texan, or I kind of think of themselves as like 19th century Texan. Like they're very like... The story says that a lot of the ones who live in the Mariner Valley came from Texas. Right. Okay. Well, and so, they, and I don't know if they've ever said this explicitly in the show. I don't think so. But Alex's character seems to have that in him, right? He, he calls everyone hoss. He listens to country music, I guess. He kind of gives off that vibe. It's also a bit of a shout out, I think, to Futurama, since the Martians in, in Futurama we're all Texans as well, and they—I don't know if you're a Futurama fan, but it's where Amy's I, parents live with the on their giant right. beetle farm. Right. One of my favorite things is that this idea, which we get more of in the kind of Gunny plotline, mm-hmm. that you know Martians, although they're separate, you know, although they have their own, you know, music and and culture and stuff, you know, they're Earthers at their at their core, and it, and it hasn't been that long, and I don't know if they've explicitly said when colonization of Mars happened relative to when the show is set. But I get the impression that it's not that long ago. It's maybe a generation or two between when those things happened. And so there's a lot of reliance on that, you know, kind of Earth culture that still persists in the same way. I would be really interested to see kind of a, in the Expanse universe, I would be curious to see kind of what a modern day Texan is like compared to a modern day Martian. I think that would be a fun scene if, if we ever get that. I agree. I don't, know whether, <laughs> I don't know whether we will see that, but I think that would be neat. So let's talk about how you got to The Expanse then. Sure, yeah. How did you get to The Expanse? Because you seem to like it a lot. 
I do like it a lot. So yeah, I got to the expense through a, a little website called Ars Technica. Yeah, so our colleague Annalie Newitz wrote up the expense, I think it was two Decembers ago, and said, you know, this is the best new sci-fi show. If you loved Battlestar Galactica, you'll love this show. And I did love Battlestar Galactica. And I had never even heard of the series of novels until people were like, oh yeah, it's a series of novels and you should read them. And I haven't yet read I should read them. <laughs> There's a lot of things I should read. And it's super addictive. You know, I find myself watching, to pull back the curtain a little bit, you know, as members of the press, we get the episodes slightly ahead of when they actually air, about five days earlier. So I just watched, like, within the last half week, I watched episodes 8, 9, and 10, essentially. And I think, like any good TV show that airs, you know, on conventional TV, it's very addictive. I mean, it's very, it's a, it's such a compelling story. And I love, unlike other sci-fi that I also enjoy, whether it's BSG, whether it's Star Trek, one of the things that I, that I think is really interesting about The Expanse that I haven't seen in many other recent sci-fi, at least not in kind of film or TV, in the same way, is that it doesn't generally rely on kind of super advanced technology or kind of made up, you know, wholly made up technology, right? The the show, I mean, it has- The proto molecule. I feel like a sure. thousand people are screaming at their speakers sure, right sure, now. Sure, sure. Yes, I was about to get to that. Yes. The proto molecule, as far as I know, is the only like great leap in kind of disbelief uh, that you have to go through as a viewer or reader of the of the show or the series. You know, because like you say, like we were talking about a moment ago, right? The the distances, there's this sort of tyranny of distance that they have to deal with. They have to deal with zero G, they have to deal with scarcity of air and water. They have to deal with kind of politics that are sort of extrapolated from our modern day politics. You know, all of that stuff. And they use the weaponry they use, right? Seems to be, from what I can tell, kind of machine guns or something like that. They don't seem to be firing any kind of energy weapons that we see in Star Wars or Star Trek or anything like that. They don't have force fields. They don't have, you know, things like that. It seems to be very much an imagined near future. Kind of in the same way that the spinoff, the Galactica spinoff Caprica was. I really like, one of the things I really liked about Caprica, I didn't think the Caprica series was generally as good as the original BSG, but... One of the things that I thought Caprica did really well was do a lot of world building in terms of the aesthetic of what Caprica as a society looked like, the clothes people wore, the devices they carried, the cars they drove. And living think, in downtown Vancouver. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I think that that's something that, that is really interesting about the way that The Expanse is set up, is that it sort of asks us to believe in a world that we could recognize as humans, right? Living today in the early 21st century, it's not terribly dissimilar. You know, it's not like in Next Generation where it's like so far in the future that there's all of these kinds of crazy things that seem unimaginable to us today, right? Everything, pretty much everything that they have there, you know, I don't know what the top speed of an Epstein drive is, but it seems like... That's the closest, forgetting about the protomolecule now, that's right. like the closest I think the show gets to you know, inventing to magic hand-waving. Right. And and even that, I mean, you know, you understand why they have to do it. Otherwise, it would just take too long and we wouldn't have colonized anything. Right. But I think that that's this whole idea of growing food and having food stations and having whole places that are de that are devoted to, to growing food and hiring, you know, botanists and bringing them great distances to take care of these, you know, special plants or whatever, uh, I think is a really neat idea as well. So that's what kind of drew me in initially. And then also, just going back to, to Belter for a moment, one of the things that I think is really interesting is thinking about this idea of how culture and language evolve as 
humans get spread out from each other and how they grow up in, you know, different gravity environments, things like that. Now that I've met Nick Farmer uh, a couple times and have had great conversations with him and understand a little bit of how he thinks about creating Belter. The guy who, who wrote Belter. Right. He was the Bay Area linguist who was hired by the show to create and kind of flesh out Belter. He was and may still be doing uh, on Twitter Belter words of the day and sort of explaining the etymology behind them and how he came up with them. That whole idea and, and how it's really well thought out, you know, what words are used. It's not just kind of haphazardly, you know, funny sounds. It's, it's, it's very deliberate, uh, which I like. And I, I would love to hear more about kind of Belter culture and Belter like music. And they, t you know, there's a joke that Martian music is terrible, right? Like, I'd love to hear what Martian music sounds like. I'd love to, you know, is there Martian food that's different? Like what, you know, if you're growing special plants in their, you know, biodomes or terraforming or whatever they're doing over there, you know, does their food, like, is it different somehow than the food that we would recognize today? And I hope that they get more into that. It's just really fun. I think the details of the show are really what make it. Belter, the, you know, very early on in the series, they they talk about how Holden, you know, just all he wants is a, is a cup of coffee. Um, like, there are just these great little details that I think really help make the show feel fresh and feel interesting in a way that I hadn't seen in quite some time. Yeah, I think you can tell that there's many years of, you know, it started originally as an MMO, an idea for an MMO game. It became like a tabletop RPG that some people would play and then it started being written up as a book. And I think you can tell that there's like sort of 10 years of thought and iteration has gone into the world that, the, you know, the world's rather plural, that the story takes place on. And that shows up in, you know, that there is, there's an attention detail in this backstory. And also, if people want to know more about Belter, if they d download or listen to the uh, episode seven in this series of podcasts, we have an interview with Nick Farmer himself. He told me his favorite word currently in Belter is uh, caca falota, which is the, the Belter equivalent of bullshit. <laughs> they, they wouldn't have bulls or, you know, large, you know, why would you have large animals in space? Are you able to anticipate kind of where the next episode, I mean, you said that compared to the books, it's more picking and choosing of different parts and maybe resetting them in a slightly different order. Are you able to generally predict like where, you know, this next episode, now having seen whatever, 20 odd episodes, where the next episode is going to go? I'm pretty sure I know where season two is going to end and where season three will start. Yes. Uh -huh. They've done things like bringing in um, sort of side stories and like bits of novellas mm -hmm. earlier into the story. And I, like I, introducing the idea of the scientists as... as that stuff took place in, a, you know, the, there was a whole backstory with the captured scientists where you learnt about, you know, how they were working on the protomolecule and the, the fact that they'd all had their senses of empathy removed. And if you're reading the books, you only found, I think that novella came out last summer and that obviously showed up earlier. There were a couple of other characters, I think they, they brought in Abbasarala earlier, but otherwise the general strokes of the plot are keeping to the same sort of rhythm. Season one and the first half of season two was the first book. I'm pretty sure we're going to finish season two at the end of the second book um oh. and that's when we find out what the protomolecule has actually been up to on venus and i'm wondering so for people that came to the show and like you you know as you've just been saying it's not quite hard sci-fi but it's pretty hard you know there are laws of physics and the technology is thoughtful extrapolation of where we are now as opposed to you know finger waving magic all over the place once people see what the protomolecule actually has actually been doing and what's going to happen next. I'm wondering if that's like how, how people will react to that. You know, will people be annoyed if this show becomes less hard sci-fi 
Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like it's been a couple of episodes now since we've seen what's going on on Venus, what is Miller up to, what's going on down there. I feel like that's kind of a long, given that Miller, you know, season one is about Miller and finding Julie, you know, Julie Mao, given that they spent so much time investing us in Miller, I'm sort of a little bit surprised that they've just kind of let him step to the side for several episodes. Well, particularly since he crashed into the surface of Venus at quite a high speed, even though he's almost certainly dead. I don't think that's the last we've seen of him. Yeah, I mean, I I sort of assume that because he has the protomolecule and that he and Julie are, you know, star-crossed lovers or whatever, are, you know, happily protomoleculizing something on Venus. I don't know what that what that looks like, but I don't I didn't interpret his crash landing on Venus at a high speed given that now he's fully been protomoleculized to be the end of him. I I I sort of assume that he's, you know, metamorphized into something. Uh, but what that something is, I don't, I don't know. Well, that's very perceptive of you, and I, and you will find out in season three, I think. <laughs> it should be quite cool, you know. And they have to keep Thomas Jane did a fantastic job, I think, as Miller. We got to see Aaron Wright finally own, own up to to his role in in almost wiping out life on Earth. Yeah, I was sort of surprised that that moment in episode ten was a little bit like it wasn't clear to me why he was deciding to come forward now. I mean, he sort of said like, "Oh, you know, Christian, you've known all along." But I was like, where is this coming from? Like, why is he doing this now as opposed to before? Because um, I, I think he's realized that Mao is, has also been working with the Martians on whatever uh-huh. he's doing with the proto molecule. And the jig was up. The look on his face when he, when he said, you know, when he said to Christian, oh, you, you've known for a while, haven't you? It's like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> when I think of sort of adjectives to describe Christian's character, she seems to be a badass. She seems to be very, very like super smart, very clever, very determined. I liked her questioning of Gunny in that hearing that, that they hold. You know, I love the fact that she stands up to random people who she thinks shouldn't give her the time of day. The one thing I wish is that so in the books, she swears even more than on the TV show. Oh, she okay. literally is, is utterly foul-mouthed. And I, it's, I think it's a technique <laughs> that she uses to disarm people around her. But yes, that's the one thing that I wish, that I wish we had more of. There's the great scene where she recruits... What's that dude's name? Kotiar, I guess? Oh, yep. Yeah, uh, yeah, her uh, yes, her personal there, spy. Right. It's great that she portrays herself as the kind of big dog in every scene. And she's like, you know, she drinks, she swears, she yells at people. She's very forceful, but is also seems very like determined. And she seems to be the kind of voice or we're, I, I sort of interpret it that, that we, the viewer, are supposed to think of her as the kind of real leader of earth in in this way and i was sort of surprised to learn when i when i was again doing my five seconds of wikipedia research that she i had always thought that she was like either the the secretary general or was like the no she's a deputy undersecretary right and that's what that sort of surprised me because given how she's portrayed and i guess the first time i think i really realized that in the show is the scene where they're talking about how they should respond to the martian attack and they bring in, I guess, the secretary general or the president. I don't know what all the titles he's are. The secretary general. And he's he is. I think he's a bit of a, a figurehead. Yeah, and the impression I got was that he was like the kind of direct opposite of of Christian. He's not forceful. He's not determined. You know, he was just like, yeah, whatever you guys think is best. Like, let's do that. And you know, whereas she has a very clearly thought out opinion and analysis. That's really interesting. Yeah, she's definitely the adult in the room. There was uh, the secretary general showed up a little bit. He was uh, talking to Aaron Wright, maybe it was last week's episode, just before the conference started about, you know, bleed the Martians dry kind of thing. 
Right, right, right. And you could tell. I mean, he, you know, he struck you struck me as a deeply unserious kind of person. Uh, Aaron Wright, obviously, his days of being in charge are numbered. Right, right, right. So I think right. I think Christian is going to be be left looking after the interests of Earth, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, and it's interesting. I was thinking back when we had this the closing scene in the most recent episode between Christian and Gunny where, you know, she sort of gets rushed away before they can have a real conversation. And I sort of, I, I wondered if maybe Gunny was going to defect to the UN because she felt like, you know, they were covering up the, the truth of the story. Have and you been reading the books? I haven't been reading the books, but it seemed not a crazy theory to me that she was going to try to, I mean, she had this whole like, you know, I want to see the ocean thing, which was fine. But like, I thought surely, you know, she's frustrated. They've sort of set this up that she's feeling frustrated with her government and they're not listening to her and they're shutting her down and they're pitting medals on her chest that she doesn't really want. And hung out, you know, they hung out Travis to dry. Yes, I'd say that again, that's extremely perceptive view. And uh, <laughs> if I were to say that I would be unsurprised if next season we found Gunny Draper working for... Avasarala in a private capacity, <laughs> maybe often on in conjunction with the crew of the Red Sea. I would be unsurprised. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I guess what I was getting at was is that that kind of confrontation struck me as a very different kind of confrontation from one of the. I think it's maybe in episode one or two where we see Christian essentially torturing a an accused Belter opiate terrorist. Uh, he's hanging off the wall and she says, oh, your body is so weak, da, da, da. And, he, and they make this whole point of saying that, you know, the gravity is different and, and people who aren't from Earth like really suffer when they come to Earth. And I thought that this was kind of an interesting kind of flip between her being sort of kind to people that are ostensibly you know, their, their enemy in a way. And not, not that like Gunny herself is the enemy, but that, but, and they make this sort of point with, uh, the character of, uh, who introduces himself as, as Nico. Yep. The guy who's been Uh, waiting 40 odd years to get into medical school. Yeah. I thought that was a really great scene too, where he's like, earth isn't all that it's cracked out to be basically, you know, he's the sort of guardian angel for Gunny and is, is super nice to her amidst this hellscape. And there's that great moment where he tells her, you know, he's like, here's how you walk. Here's what you do. You lift your head in this way. And then you're just like us. And that's it. Uh, and then he just vanishes. I thought the way that they that they introduced and then that guy just disappears again, I thought was great. I hope we see that character again. It would be neat if he popped up in, in something really small. When Gunny's like figuring out how to escape from her hotel room or whatever, I thought that, you know, when she initially takes that fall, I was like, oh my God, she's going to die here. Like I thought, I thought, you know, because they'd been, they'd been building up to all of this like... You know, she said that she trained in, in, in Earth's gravity for a long time and all the Martians do that. But she nevertheless felt seemed like she felt very unsure of kind of her body in that environment. And they make a point of illustrating that when they have the guy getting off of the transport where he vomits immediately. And so they make this big deal that it's like it's like kind of a physical ordeal for people to come to Earth. And she's on this like crazy hotel roof or whatever or their the em- Martian embassy compound or something. And when she tumbles down those those roof kind of cascades as soon as she fell to the bottom i was like oh my god she's just died and you know that that's really awful and then she just gets up and runs down (laughs) which is good she's a great character i wanted her to you know i didn't want her to die but that whole kind of sequence it was told in i thought a really great way and i thought that it was an interesting way to communicate uh and reveal to the audience what we were talking about earlier the the kind of you know at least parts of Earth are not quite what they seem. You know, her kind of stroll through the little slum is probably, what, a minute, two minutes or something? It's not that long. 
but it says so much. And I thought some of the details in that shot were great, where you have not only people who clearly need medical attention, but you have, I love the kind of like futuristic, like pots and pans with the little like screens on them and stuff. Yes, all the smart pans <laughs> with the holographic displays. That was, yeah, and the thermometers on there. And it was kind of in the same way that we were that we were mentioning a moment ago, like it's it's kind of an extrapolation of what a more future slum would look like is that people would have, you know, these kind of smart pans or, or, or things in, in that way. Um, and I'd be that curious. technology will be ubiquitous 200 years right. from now. Right. And I would be curious also to know if like there's sort of a hierarchy of sl- like, is that, are all slums like that? Or is that one like some, you know, semi better than others? Like, are there others that are more primitive that don't have the like little burners and the little like cool little uh, smart pots and pans and whatever, but I don't know how deep into the kind of earth society they're, they're going to get. But I just thought that that scene and the kind of ending of episode 10 was really great. And I love also the constant, you know, as a reporter for ours, I'm constantly writing about drones, people shooting at drones, you know, things like that. And so I love that drones are like this kind of unspoken character in in The Expanse. Uh, I think in some of the early episodes in, I think it's Eros, there's just kind of drones everywhere. And also on series, yeah. And on series, right. They're just kind of omnipresent and people, from what I can tell, people don't seem to give them any mind. They're just kind of part of the landscape. And I love how in her little street walk, I think there's one that pops down. And then if I remember correctly, at the very end, when Christian gets kind of whisked away, I thought I spot. I'd have to watch it again to be sure, but I, f- I feel like I saw one, you know, kind of hovering nearby. But if, um, if you haven't read the the Peripheral, which is William Gibson's yeah. most recent book, there's a lot of future drone stuff in there too. That's obviously I would highly yeah. recommend. Yeah. Well, it's and and also, I mean, with this episode, you know, so I read a lot about surveillance and privacy drones stuff like that for ours, and it's interesting to watch. Like there was this great scene with what's this guy Roma, uh, who has this like fancy facial recognition software where he can just like scan everything. And he seems to be this sort of computer genius of Ganymede, this like reclusive, you know, mafia hacker type guy. And he seems to have access to this like fantastic facial recognition database. And I feel like, again, going back to what we were saying earlier, that to me doesn't feel very far away from our current reality, you know? You know, like that could definitely happen, I feel like within the next five to 10 years easily. Maybe not like you know, you and I having a database like that, but I could totally see like the police or the FBI or, you know, other kind of government agencies having something like that, where they can easily scan from, you know, a photo taken at a glance compared to the, you know, massive database that they have, the, you know, DMV records or whatever, uh, passport records, in the same way that he seems to be doing in that in that scene. They may even already be there. <laughs> Probably it could be. There was actually just uh, like this past week, there were some congressional hearings held about facial recognition. Sam last week was talking about some story about some Facebook app, which I don't know whether it's real yet or not, which promised to be able to take like just a photo. You, you'd upload a photo and it would search Facebook and identify those people and tell you who they were. I totally believe that. Yeah. I think I may have even written about it for ours within the last year or two, somebody in Russia using, I think it was like the Russian equivalent of, of Facebook, which is called Vekontakte, and using that to essentially dox people who've appeared in porn films. So essentially, you know, outing people who've, you know, performed in those films, you know, as a way to harass them and, and do awful stuff. Yeah, facial recognition and surveillance, I think, are a really interesting part of The Expanse. And it's something that we get kind of a glimpse of in the early seasons when when you have Miller in his little police station um, and there, you know, everybody seems to be carrying around 
essentially digital like kind of wanted posters. <laughs> and I just love the idea that like that, you know, investigations, whether they're done by the crew of the Rossi or by, you know, the, the private police or whoever, Star Helix, amounts to like carrying around a little smartphone and saying, have you seen this person? <laughs> it's just kind of a funny funny thing in the way that like, you know, in some ways, investigations don't change that much at the end of the day, <laughs> you know, have you seen this person, you know, or, or, you know, we want this person is, is just like a, an old wanted poster, I guess. It's all about finding the right source. <laughs> right, right. Sirius, thanks so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. I'm super stoked to see how the season ends. Stay listening. Up next, we have our other colleague, John Timmer, interviewing Frankie Adams, who plays Bobby Draper. Let's hear from Jay and Frankie. Hi, this is John Timmer. We're here at 30 Rock in the NBC store talking with Frankie Adams, who plays Bobby Draper on The Expanse. Hello there. Thank you for having me. Most of the major characters of The Expanse seem to be making up things as they go along, and (laughs) you play this uh, incredibly disciplined Marine who's highly trained. Do you you find this... Very different to me. Very different. (laughs) Do you find that a strain to sort of be in such a rigid role in comparison? Um, no, I really enjoy it because I think it's, I really like that she's very direct and unapologetic. I, those are aspects that I would, I would like about myself. <laughs> and so sure of herself, I think that's kind of a, a great aspect of her. I obviously had to get into like very military mode, you know, the voice, the training. We did like formation training with a military guy who's really great, Al. And, but I think a lot of the things that people don't realize is that although she's rigid, she's got a really big heart. And she really, she's really passionate about what she's fighting for. And that's why she's so disciplined. That's why she's doing all of these things. She's not like out partying or anything. <laughs> not yet anyway. I know you box a little bit. Yeah. And so you must be used to training and everything. But I am used to training, but, but not in the way that Bobby does. So obviously, like, I was probably quite lean when I first got the role. And, and Bobby is, is known to be, you know, muscly per se. So as soon as I got to Toronto, I, I went into straight, like, just strength and conditioning. No boxing, no fitness. Because, you know, you're at risk of losing muscle if you do that. So it was kind of like Groundhog Day. It was just like... Okay, lift that really heavy weight as many times as possible, almost every day, basically. And eat a lot of meat and drink protein, just protein. So yeah, definitely felt like Groundhog Day, especially because I'm used to a variety of training and that was like so specific. But there was like a few times where I was like, please, can I just go and do some boxing? Like, I know you don't want me to do it because I can, you know, I'll lean out, but I just need it for myself. for my sanity right in the scenes that I've seen so far I haven't seen all of season two yet but you're interacting with the captain of the ship you're saying oh yes and in a lot of ways he's sort of the voice of reason and you're yeah the voice of unreason I'm the eager young person who just wants to get to it yeah Yeah. so so (laughs) do you find it hard to be you know sort of fighting against the guy the audience is going to be sympathetic with no because I like a challenge and that's something that I share in common with with Bobby she likes a challenge because she knows she can always overcome it. But um, Sutton, he's the guy, isn't he? He was great, actually. I, I like that conflict. I think it was really important for people to see it because then you got to see the passion that Bobby had behind you know, all the training and why she's there and what she's been doing her entire life like, and with no result, really. So I, I kind of like that conflict. It's all right. They'll be on Bobby's side by, by the end of it. <laughs> so have you read the books? Do you know what's, what's coming for your character? Well, when I got the audition, I started reading 
the second book, I cheated. I didn't go for the first because I knew that Bobby came in the second and I just needed a base knowledge of her. And I immediately fell in love with her. I just felt like she was such a, an incredible woman. And, you know, a lot of things that you might not know is that she's charismatic, funny. You don't get to see that immediately because, you know, you've got to see her, her strength and her military background. But there's, there was a lot of aspects of Bobby that I really, you know, she's not defined by her sexuality or her gender. You know, if she wants sex, she knows where to get it. And she's not, she's not going to, like, hold back. If she wants something, she gets it. And I really like that. So, yeah, I did read the second book just to get some information just to help me with, with it all. Yeah, and I understand she's a, a fan favorite. Do you feel a little pressure yes. because so many people have sort of identified with I think her? pressure would be an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize until I went, I think I went on to like Reddit or something and, you know, because Ty and Daniel, who are the authors, they always let me know like, oh, by the way, Bobby's really loved. Like, she's really loved. I'm like, okay, okay, whatever. And then I went onto the internet and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> like this woman is really loved and she's not even a person yet. And then as soon as they attached my face to it, I got like six marriage proposals. It was <laughs> the craziest thing. I was like, you guys haven't even seen me do anything. You're just like so glad that, that there's a face and a body to, to the name. Like it was, it was quite funny. So that really like confirmed for me that she's definitely very loved. So you're, you're coming in, you know, in the middle of a show that's already up and running. Has, has it been hard to sort of you know, find your way into a plot that's already moved pretty yeah. far. I had a little bit of anxiety around that because I was just like, oh, I didn't do the first season at all. There was no story for me to carry on. It was just like, you're starting here, although they've all started there. But actually, the way that they write it is, is really generous for me. I, I felt like I didn't really have to do too much because, you know, the writers are always present, the showrunners are there, producers are there, you can ask them anything and they're always there for you, they always answer your questions and so I got as much information as I needed for Bobby and the books really helped too. But I also didn't want to know too much, I kind of wanted to explore her in my own way and figure out because I'm like, although she is still a woman, I kind of wanted to put my own spin on the character that's already been developed and without going too far out of it, obviously, because you want you want to give the fans what they want. <laughs> they, you gotta give the fans what they want. <laughs> Are you happy to have a female in the role of this Marine? You know, it was obviously written that way, but. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it's really important. I, I read a few really great articles online from mothers and fathers where they said that they felt like Bobby is someone that they'd really want their children to watch, especially their daughters because they just felt like she was body positive, she didn't need a man. <laughs> not that, like, a teenage girl's... <laughs> you know, she's not... She's, she's obviously not defined by her sexuality. She's really sure in herself. And I think, like, she was just a really healthy role model for children to see, so I felt really proud of the character. And, like, why not? Some of the strongest people I know are women, and, you know, it shouldn't be so, like, rare to have a woman in, in a leading role like that. But I think it's becoming more of a thing, which is really good. Yeah, The Expanse in general seems to be, you know, in a way I'm envious of. It's got a culture that's gender and ethnic yeah. blind. Yeah. And and yet you've got still got this intense tribalism about where you were born, which your character is, is a big part of. Do you think that lets you address things that are sort of relevant to today in a way that is is helpful yeah well it's tough because obviously i'm i'm from the south pacific so i haven't been too involved with everything that's happening here specifically but i i feel like i'm patriotic in my own way um i felt really glad that bobby was of samoan ancestry because i am samoan i grew up with my samoan mother she spoke the language i was born there and i feel really proud to be from there so 
playing the character definitely resonated in me and, and I, I always would I mean I would always love to represent but unfortunately this is the first American role where I, it actually was someone from Samoa huh. yeah like usually they just say like mixed race and it's very generalized but this was very specific and I, I was like oh my god that's so cool I've not seen it yet if they don't give me this role I'm gonna be so gutted you know like I just I just felt like I needed to play this woman and I'm so fortunate that I was able to do it so you mostly grew up in New Zealand, or yeah, I grew up in New Zealand, totally. I mean, can't you tell? No, <laughs> such a Kiwi. Um, yeah, grew up in New Zealand, but born in Samoa. How did you find out about the role? How did you get it? The casting director in New Zealand, she got the brief like probably a month in advance, and she already knew me because she had cast me in something previously. And she called my agent immediately and said, "What is Frankie doing? I just got this brief, like." Honestly, I've just got this brief, make sure her schedule is free, like she needs to do this. But it wasn't a while until I had to do it, so so I saw the brief and I was like, oh yeah, like I could definitely do that. Like that sounds super cool, but it also at the time felt like worlds away. And then after my first audition, she was like, that was amazing, like great work. I'm like, okay, like you never know. And then they call me a few days later saying like, you are totally their favorite. Like they're just going all over the world, but just letting you know <laughs> they're your favorite. I'm like, they're going all over the world? Damn, why? Why are they doing that? Why would they do that? But um, then they said, like, okay, we want to see you again. And I had a Skype meeting, actually, with Noreen and Breck, the director of the first two episodes. And who else was there? Mark, I think. And um, Ty was behind the camera because he didn't want to get in front of the camera. <laughs> and then we just kind of did, like, a director-slash-producer audition. And then I think they just we just had a chat because they wanted to know what I was like. And they thought I was hilarious. So I think that's actually what got me the role. <laughs> so you know, to some extent, the Polynesians, which is your ancestry, engaged in the greatest migration on Earth. And now the Expanse is sort of the story of the migration off the Earth. Do you, do you see some parallels? Does that interest you at all? Yeah, I do. But most of our migration was like, on water <laughs> not like in a space space I mean I just saw Moana of course because like honestly if she came out 15 years ago she would have been my absolute hero I think it is about time that they have a Polynesian Disney princess there's such a huge culture everywhere around the world Hawaii Polynesia Asia you know that that we could all look at and be like oh my god like it just, I just wanted to cry on the inside. But yeah, I guess there is a little bit of that. I didn't, we didn't really touch too much on that, really, because obviously I was already there. Had you been interested in science fiction before this opportunity? Or I really wish that I was. <laughs> My boyfriend's really into it, so he kind of like gave me like the down low on everything. Like, okay, babe, this is it. But I'm really glad that I'm a part of it now because then I can kind of explore it and, and learn a whole new realm really but um no i wasn't but getting much more into it now you've been listening to decrypted ars technica's podcast about all the television that we're obsessing about so be here next week and we'll talk some more <laughs>